0: Yo, happy holidays, happy day after Christmas day, everybody, it is Eli from your favorite podcast, The Catch-Up. Today we're doing a quick rerun of one of my favorite episodes of the year, it's where we had ESPN, NBA, sports writer, Baxter Holmes on the podcast. He gave us a lot of dope NBA secrets about what players are obsessed with. Uh, wine, from peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, caffeine. He even details how the Golden State Warriors' multi-year NBA dynasty can be traced back to a chance meeting over a charcuterie board. Like It's crazy. It's one of my favorites as a, as a basketball fan, NBA fan, and as a, just as a food beast. It's my favorite episode of the year. So I hope you guys enjoy it, and we will catch you guys in the new year with some fire new podcast episodes. <laughs>
1: You know, I think the headline of the story is they're like the NBA's frequent flyers. The the Trailblazers actually, I believe, um, again, I'd have to pull it up and look at the stats, but I think they fly more than any team in professional sports. So you can make the case that they're the most sleep-deprived team in professional sports. So that what caffeine is for them is different than anybody else. Um, It's like working the graveyard shift in some ways.
2: Welcome to The Catch-Up. Introducing your hosts. Eli Abreu. Editor-in-chief. And... Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms, Food Feast. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy! There's not one person in this entire world that believes you.
0: All right, and welcome to The catchup. All right, welcome back to The Ketchup, y'all. It's a podcast that's food for your ears. Jeff, are you down for this? Kind of. <laughs> that was a description. Shout out to This is Foggy on Instagram for listening and suggesting that. I'll keep shouting out those reviews on iTunes if you leave your Instagram account in the description. But let's talk some weird... NBA diets, Jeff. Let's do it. Okay. We're, we're in the heat of the NBA playoffs right now. Jeff and I love basketball. He's a diehard Clippers fan. Go Clips. Whatever. I'm Lakers all day, so go Lakers. Uh, we played high school ball. I'm still pretty nice at 24 Hour Fitness.
2: <laughs> you would put that in the um, intro.
0: <laughs> we talk ball all the time here, but we rarely find an intersection of basketball and food So that's why I'm excited to have the legendary ESPN writer, Mr. Baxter Holmes, in the building. Uh, He's once a beat reporter for the Lakers for ESPN. He's covered the Celtics for the Boston Globe. But Baxter is a food beast at heart, if I have to say. Some of his best reporting is explaining the world of sports through food. He's written about a charcuterie board that revolutionized modern basketball. He's covered the secret team dinners that built the San Antonio Spurs' dynasty. He's a James Beard award-winning article about the NBA's once secret addiction to peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Baxter, welcome to the Ketchup Podcast.
1: Man, you, you opened with legendary. That's, uh, <laughs> not going to spend the rest of the podcast trying to live up to that.
0: <laughs> we'll start high and, and keep jumping off cliffs. This is good. Welcome, man.
1: Thank you, man. Thank man. you for having me.
0: Dude, I, I spent a lot of time reading up on your articles now. I, I remember the NBA P, PB&J one, and you just have a great body of work.
1: It's uh, it's not one I really ever expected to have. Well, first of all, thanks for reading. So you're the one. Yeah, thanks for the There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice that, you know, fan club of one, I appreciate that. But, yeah, I mean, and a lot of those stories are long stories, so thanks for committing the time uh, to read them. But, um, I yeah, I never, you know, I'm always looking for good stories, and I never anticipated that a sliver of the however many I've written would, you know, be some intersection of the culinary world and sports. But it's turned out that there's a fair number of good stories there. So,
0: Was the peanut butter and jelly article the first foray into covering food within sports? Or how did that kind of start?
1: You know, okay, so it's an interesting, it's a good question. Starting off the bat, good, I like it. Let's get Uh, it. So the very first one actually was um, about Kobe Bryant and this bone broth that the team would make for him. Uh, especially before every single game, and I learned about it during one of his final years when I was covering the the Lakers for um, ESPN as a beat reporter. And I remember talking to their strength and conditioning coach about like what it, everything it takes to keep Kobe up and running. He's you know uh, was older in his career; it had, had a lot of injuries. Like, what's it take? I know he goes through a lot of physical therapy and things. And he said, um, well, you know, we do this, we do that. We always make sure he gets his uh, soup on game days before the game. So I was like, what what are you doing? What is this? And uh, they were describing how he has to have it specially made uh, with like really rich bone broth. And it's good for the joints, like the collagen and whatnot, which is important for all the mileage he had on his frame. And uh, they would contact hotels ahead of time to make sure they had the proper ingredients and could make it ahead of time. And there were different ways he liked it. And I thought that was like an interesting thing. And I told my editors and um it they put it on page one of vspn wow. and uh, or espn.com and i remember there was like a, a lot of reaction to it and then after that um i remember noticing that the lakers had this special chocolate milk that was in all of the players lockers after every game and they would like rush in there and it was specially made they would contact whole foods in advance in the various cities they were going to to have it specially made and it was like for recovery purposes whatnot it's like that was a fun story, and um, again, there was like a lot of reaction to it. You know, who knew that people like chocolate milk? Um, yeah. But uh, and then from there, I did the peanut butter and jelly one. So it kind of has gone from there a little bit. Again, I don't. I'm <clears throat> excuse me. I'm always just looking for like a good story, and um, I'm always probably looking for a way to build connections with readers and these and athletes with whom they. You know, like look, these guys are, are enormous. They're incredibly wealthy, incredibly famous. They're the top one percent of the world in what they do. There's not a lot of people on the planet who have any connection to these guys. But you know, uh, the culinary world, food—it's one of the few things that that makes us all human. And so, uh, I've—I've—that's kind of been reinstalled in me through these stories. So, anyways, that's a that's a a very long winded answer to your question about how some of this started.
0: No, that's valuable because the idea of people finding resonance even through bone broth or just finding out what Kobe eats to become that 1% and the 1% of the 1% if you're talking about Kobe. So I think that's a good entry point for people that maybe don't even play sports or don't follow basketball reporting and then all of a sudden I can figure out, because food is something everyone has access to.
1: Yeah, and most, uh, sure. right, and you know, from there I've done, uh, so a story about peanut butter and jelly and how the NBA is obsessed with it and a story about wine in the NBA and the kind of booming uh, connoisseurs throughout the league. You know, you mentioned at the top the story about uh, San Antonio Spurs and their head coach Greg Popovich and the team, the art of the team dinner. Um, and I did a story, as you guys mentioned on the top, too, about this this kind of charcuterie board that was this um, entry point for the Warriors and diagramming um, the, uh, at the very first instance of their offense and what it would become. So... Uh, it's, it, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny as I look back again, I never anticipated a lot of this stuff, but you know, it, it has resonated with people, I guess, in a way, in part, because it's one of the, like, one of the best things that people that, uh, readers ever tell me is I don't care about sports, but I really enjoyed that story. And, uh, I think that that's what, you know, because like sports fans are going to read these stories, no matter what NBA fans are, because they're interested in the NBA, Um, but I think I'm always thinking of, like, what's the bigger pool? What's the bigger audience that I can reach? And it doesn't get much bigger than just being human.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because I'm assuming the the majority of feedback that those articles got was, was the humanizing aspect of what was being written, right? Like you mentioned, Baxter, the, the players that you're talking about are – Wealthy and they're they're a professional athlete and there there's distance between them and someone sitting in the 300 seats right. But then when you explain the nuances of Kevin Garnett liking strawberry in his PB and J, it's like yo that's know, me like, like, yo I like-, I like strawberry. Wait <laughs> he request he oh so Lillard likes his toasted like those are all things. Yeah. That they, they, <clears throat> these are everyday humans and I think that's what gets me so excited about the story. And then I'm also a geek on basketball, so on top, there's two layers for me, but at the very least, the food, I think, and almost everyone can relate to on some aspect.
0: Yeah, it's badass, because I can't relate to dunking a basketball. Yep. Like when I see Kevin Garnett do I'm like, dude. Ugh.
2: I can't talk to my friend, you see that dunk that Kevin
0: Garnett, but like, I can be like, yo, he likes the same peanut butter that I do, that's tight. I wanna dig in a little bit to that story. I know it was a little while ago, but it's so fascinating to me. And I'm sure people at home, if you haven't read this article, go read it. There's great pictures, don't worry. Um, The words words are fantastic (laughs) as well. Um, I didn't know Dwight Howard had such an addiction to sugar and a problem with it, essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a a serious part of the story. And um, he was so addicted that he was displaying, according to um, somebody I interviewed, like a, what would be considered the, early signs of, of kind of like onset diabetes or whatever I'm not a, I'm not a medical person so I, I'm not doing a good job explaining it but he was having the jo- um, he was consuming so much sugar every day that and you can become addicted to it sugar I mean people will explain that to me like sugar's a drug you know you can it'll uh, it, it can happen anyways but it, his hands were like tingling because of it and he was having a hard time catching the ball and they really needed to and it also he I think had undergone back surgery but there was some, and I think you have the story in front of you, so you can you can uh, point it out to me. But somebody was telling me that he was consuming like the equivalent of like a dozen. Uh, Hershey bars worth of sugar every single day. I think you wrote about
0: 20. It was the equivalent of 20. Or maybe it was a ca- two dozen. Candy bars worth
1: of sugar a day. And it was, it was, yeah, like, that's a legitimate scary thing. And um, I've heard of other stories of, of uh, and then I've seen, like, documentaries of people being addicted to sugar. There's actually several really powerful sugar documentaries. But, yeah, I remember that. But then the thing, I actually remember where I was, was when I was interviewing the uh, nutritionist for the Lakers, and she was saying, like, yeah, you know, it was funny, and we were like, we had to overhaul his diet and tell him, these are all the things we gotta cut out. And the the only question he asked was like, well, can I still eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? And it was indicative of what that is around the NBA. Um, you know, that started for me when I was uh, actually an intern at the Boston Globe in the summer of 2008, the Lakers Celtics finals was going on. And I remember there was some story about how Kevin Garnett had the team like eating PB and J all year. And that was kind of interesting. I was like, oh, that's weird. And then uh, when I became a full-time NBA beat writer later incidentally enough i think it was like five years later for the globe um and i started traveling around the nba i would see peanut butter and jelly sandwiches like every locker room before games i'd see them in training facilities and i was like man look this is really and so then i just was like i told managers like hey can i look into this a little bit and they're like yeah sure that's fine you know whatever and uh there was this whole other thing there so um it's you know there were a lot of fun stories in there. their reaction to that story, and then the you know the James Beard Award and everything. Like I still probably hear about that story once a day. So you met my quota for today. There we go. <laughs> um, but but and this is what it's like two two years old something like that. Yeah. But, um, you know what? It the, the thing I'll I'll say about it real quick. Um, we're talking about food and like the the power of food and uniting people. I've come to learn that the peanut butter and jelly sandwich is one of the most important things in it, to people, in part because it's so deeply tied to your childhood. Mm. And in large part, like, you know, the sandwich your mom made you for going to school, you know, you have in the cafeteria, you know, and like those those memories are really deeply powerful. And, you know, also the way that they it was made for you. So, um...
0: And memory- how was not made for some people? I remember, I forget the NBA player you mentioned, but someone that wasn't born here in the States... Had his first peanut butter and jelly sandwich.
1: Oh yeah, it was Christa's Porzingis, there and he you was go. like, he became in love with it. And um, there's also science behind like why that's a perfect marriage. I like the science of like the acid and the sugar and everything like in your palate. It's like a, it's an amazing thing. But um, that is a very, it's a touchstone dish for a lot of people when they think about their childhood and the way that it was prepared for them. Um and that stays with them. And so their allegiances, as you were mentioned earlier, to like strawberry and grape, whatnot. I can't I mean the, the amount of messages I got from people about um they were taking sides in that way. Or like, oh, it's gotta be creamy or it's gotta be chunky or you know, no crust or this kind of bread or whatever. It was um it was amazing to see the reaction to that. It taught me a lot um uh, about how people feel about that. And then um but it, it was there that underlying lesson too was about food and memory and the people that made it for you and how those things stay with you forever. How do you take your PB and J? Oh man, you know I don't even eat PB and J that much. I'm trying to think. Uh, I, I and this will sound like I'm hedging. I really don't have a hard preference over like creamy or um, or Crunchy. chunky or <laughs> like whatever. I don't. You know I've had it a lot of different ways and it all tastes pretty good to me. There are. Uh, Uncrustable, uh, I think it's made by Smuckers, I want to say. In the Staples Center press room before games. And I think those are made with um, uh, strawberry and creamy. And sometimes if I'm super hungry, like a lot of people in that room, I'll I'll go for one of those and they're fine.
0: Oh, it's flames. That in the freezer (laughs) a little bit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love Smuckers Uncrustables.
2: Baxter, your article specifically mentions Brian Dew, uh, a strength and conditioning coach of the Boston Celtics someone that i'm assuming is in the top 1% of what he does because he's working for an nba franchise he was creating 20 pb&js before the game and labeling them with the letters s for strawberry in sharpie how long has food been an aspect of high level paid staffing of nba sports teams and and do you have like you already mentioned the bone broth being prepared in my for Kobe in, in my head, I'm just seeing this heavy six figure level T-mom, coaching staff <laughs> that's putting these sandwiches together because the players want it and it's helping. Yeah. I'm just wondering when you started seeing that like to become a Was it PB and J first? Uh, so this is a really good question. Uh, there have been a lot
1: in recent years in the NBA of. Uh, improvements right like you know teams didn't always fly on charter planes Uh, they flew commercial for a long time and we've seen amazing um, renovations and brand new uh, practice facilities and teams are hiring I think the the Philadelphia 76ers one of my colleagues wrote uh, at ESPN has a have a like a James Beard award-winning chef as their nutritionist and who like prepares as the team chef who prepares meals and this has been in the arms race of improving the NBA, uh, or as people, as the owners invest in various elements of the teams, has been an area uh, that has has come a long way as the food. I think people had told me like way back in the day, you know, teams didn't necessarily even provide that much food, or if they did, it was you know whatever. It might have been food in the arena, kind of fast food type stuff like burgers and hot dogs, things like that. Um, but you've seen there's been a great improvement in like the pregame spread, the postgame spread, the food on the plane. Um, really high-end uh, team chefs, players hiring personal chefs. They're they're trying to fine tune and eat really well because it's. I mean, their body is their business. Like they are fine, incredibly fine-tuned athletes. Um, but on top of that, you know, so you like you mentioned do, uh, and I think this is true. in other elements of the story, the, you know, the guys are kind of superstitious. Like some of them like certain things a certain way, and I remember people around the league telling me, like even if it sounds. A little bit crazy or a little bit weird you know these guys are creatures of habit and if they like if they think like it's actually kind of a mental thing if they think that eating a certain kind of thing before a game having it a certain way at a certain time puts them in a mental space that prepares them every time for whatever the the game ahead then that's worth it you know um it's not even i think it was a nutritionist who said this like a peanut butter and jelly is not even is not maybe the most the best thing that it can have, but it's not the worst. and the most important thing is it mentally um, puts them in a space that they feel comfortable in and that's that's almost more valuable than anything. So yeah, it's some of these habits I'm sure are funny um, in a way, but uh, look when there's like millions and millions of I mean some of these guys' contracts and what's on the stake or what's at stake for for these franchises themselves or themselves, Like, you know, slapping together some PB&Js or whatever or calling, you know, the team chef or the, uh, uh, you know, chef at the hotel at some four seasons where the Lakers are staying and saying, hey, we need this bone broth this way. Uh, It's a small investment when you consider everything that's on the line.
0: Are players more like independent contractors of the team or are they like employees of the team? And I ask because... As a segue into your article about with Greg Pop about how he kind of splurges and has really dope team dinners for, for his team and the players and almost both on a recruitment level and kind of keeping people happy. Like, do players when you hear LeBron James spends a million dollars on his body a year?
1: Is that something the Lakers should be paying for? Or how does that work? I mean, the, the Lakers do have a, an athletic training staff and people that he can work with there. But he's not going to be around the team the whole time. Like, he's going to be home. And, you know, Kobe, likewise, had a lot of specialists that he worked with individually who maybe he felt, given his body would um, and the things he, he maybe needed at that later stage of his career, would be better suited to help him with, um, but the team does have you know a, um, a big or you know a, most teams have pretty big size staffs to work with everybody, strength and conditioning coaches, head athletic trainers, physical therapists, massage therapists, uh, nutritionists. It goes on and on. Um, but you know guys like LeBron obviously are going to make an even bigger investment, and he, I I don't know what I'm assuming he has a gym at his own home, and and uh, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't. I'm pretty sure he does, but anyways. Um, but uh, to your question, are the individual con- – I mean, they are – I guess they're employees, right? I mean, they're under contract with these organizations, if you want to just look at it as a business sense. Like, they're being paid to, to for services rendered for the mm-hmm. teams themselves. But they're also, in their own way, kind of individual corporations. These contracts aren't forever, and mm-hmm. there's kind of a finite amount of time that they're going to play in the NBA. You know, Kobe was in it for a long time, but he's an anomaly in that way. Um so it's a, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah,
0: because Jeff and I were talking about Greg Pop, and I think in one of your articles, it was something like a million dollars, maybe over the course so far he's spent. He's, on dinners? He spent.
1: Oh, I mean, over the well, over twenty years, I'd be I'd be very surprised if it wasn't, um, yeah, in the definitely in the seven figure range when you consider what he spent. You know, what I've been told that he's spent like on individual bottles of wine. So uh, just mm-hmm. at like one of those dinners, and that's not and counting you know, picking up the tab for a lot of very large individuals um, and then doing it over the course of many times during the season. But I remember thinking about that, um, you know, again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. When you think about the amount of money that's involved with these guys' contracts, um, you know, the the NBA, the TV deal, the revenue sharing, like the many, many millions of dollars, a $20,000 dinner is like a small slice of that when you factor in, and what he believes is the amount of togetherness and the camaraderie and the teamwork that you can forge uh, from something like that. So, And and look, I, last I checked, the Spurs have been really good for a long time. So I think the investment, whatever they're doing, whatever he's doing, I, I think it's easy to say it. That it works. It's total work. I think
0: our nitpicky was like, all right, cool. Is this coming out? Does he use like a San Antonio Spurs credit card on these dinners? Or is he just like, my contract is X million a year. Yeah. What's $20,000 for a dinner to keep me good with the team? So,
1: keep- I, I, it's a great question. um I think I posted in like a leftovers, pun intended, maybe, uh, <laughs> because I, I had a ton of material on that. I think, you know, I, I started on that one. Well, here's actually how that came about, if I can backtrack just a yeah. So I, I did um, – I noticed that NBA players were posting a lot about wine in the NBA, right? They were posting pictures of being at wineries or wine regions or a lot of bottles, things like that. And I was just interested if they were uh, really genuinely curious and wanting to learn about wine or if they were just spending money on wine because the NBA was a beer and liquor league for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I started looking into that. My boss is off the heels of the PB&J story you know granted me the gave me the okay to look ahead and, into it if you know if you find a good story let us know and but every time i would mention like nba and wine to people they would say like oh my god greg Popovich, and they would just like start with some legend <laughs> and i was i was like okay well let's, you know that's great i'm i'm i am trying to focus on the players um but the legends about him were amazing so i kind of set everything aside the story then the wine story came out in like february of whatever the 2018 maybe i can, my time is messed up and then i kind of focus back on on pop and uh, i mean the story look he, a he's been he's been into wine and food for a long time like 50 years um and he's been doing this with the spurs for you know like two decades so he has a lot of or uh, nba players everybody has a lot of ground to cover to try to catch up to him but um that's so that's how that story came out but to your question about the the expenses the out-of-pocket um i've been told that he principally pays for almost every dinner and at least the wine out of pocket um and the wine is you know the biggest probably expense for a lot of these dinners i'm sure uh you know i think somebody said something like out of 10 dinners he may turn in one receipt and that will just be for the food so I think you could feel that too if
0: you're. I've obviously never been to a dinner yet with uh, Greg Pop. I'm sure that's coming yeah. uh, in my future.
2: Yeah. But,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I hope it, it, it's a bucket list thing. I think for a lot of people in and around the NBA, especially you know before the story came out and probably afterwards too.
2: Well, Eli, our side conversation. I mean, I have the theory that he was paying for these dinners out of pocket mainly because. Of how much i think that changes the invitation dynamic to the people that he's trying to bring to these dinners for camaraderie or team building right if you're inviting whoever if you're inviting tim duncan to a dinner and you're gonna then ask him to split the check afterwards Mm. like that doesn't seem like he's a grown man with his own money and his own time you're asking for an increased investment in time, atop practices and game days and whatever. So, I was assuming that he looks that he looks at those dinners as a as a write off for team building, because otherwise, like I don't see how that invitation functions but for we've the all, team. We've all been to dinners
0: with someone that works for a company, and you know they're going to kind of write it off. Like you you know that like hey, don't worry, I got this dinner. I'm going to write it off, or I'm going to do that. And I, I'm assuming that little nuance in having a dinner with greg pop is not there Uh There you go right so it's like yo whatever the fuck man this is the best bottle of wine i'm getting this you know me you trust me i've eaten and drank for 50 years i got this Uh you know that those little things make that dinner that much more special as opposed to kind of like a team function if you will and that's not as fun to go to you know other teams do it but we don't have the sommelier greg pop on our staff
1: the other thing i want you to think about too with this and it was uh it was something that was always in the back of my head uh, especially as uh, the more people i talked to for that one like again go back i mentioned this with pb and j like go back to your childhood if you're like if your mother your father your your parents family members friends if they prepared a meal for you like come to the table i cooked this meal for you i'm gonna feed you it's my way of you know showing care for you showing love for you that has been as true As anything throughout time, like people, you know, taking care of other people at the table, and it resonates in a really deep way. It doesn't matter where you're from, and the Spurs have had an incredibly international locker room for a long time. But that is one of the, you know, most. I mean, you think of like, oh man, this like mama's cooking. Like you're in college, you go home, you know, for Thanksgiving. You have like the, you know, the food that you remember from your childhood. I'm just saying that like the art of bringing someone to the table to feed them, to nourish them, to take care of them. It resonates on a very deep level within us all and i think that's a really key thing that he understands incredibly well and is uh not to be lost with thinking about these dinners and what they mean to everybody in the organization all the players the staff um and and the you know camaraderie that they're able to forge It's an inherent skill then there's not a lot of people
0: that can do dinner like that. You know, a lot of oh, dinners yeah. are forced. You can get invited to a dinner, who cares who's paying, if it's just awkward and annoying. He seems like the type of dude where it's just perfect. It's like there's no friction whatsoever. He already knows everything on the menu, don't even look, You type, type thing, and that
2: speaks volumes. B- Baxter, does the team culture that's created in part by those dinners, Um, And to bring in the other subject that we already talked about, the owners that are investing across nutrition or making investments to make the players' lives better, is that actually assisting in the recruitment of top-tier players to organizations, in your opinion? And, And maybe it does or maybe it doesn't. But for me, Eli, I think that when I read about Spurs culture, It makes me want to be a part of it like that's something like if i was on a team of any kind and our team got together for dinners and that would sounds like an amazing culture to me yeah um and you know i'm assuming maybe top tier players make their decisions maybe mostly on finances and personal choices but if i'm a if i'm a mid-level player and there's a team culture that's exciting and that i know about i don't know i think that would affect my decision making process in some way but i'm curious about how you feel about that
1: yeah well i think it all adds up to the culture like you were talking about and culture is an important part it's just like anything right like these guys are going to work what's that workplace like um how do employees feel there is there a good sense of togetherness or people on an island is there infighting and dysfunction or you know, is it going to be a place where I am happy to go into the office and I can feel like I can do work and people care about my well being and whatnot? And the dinners um, play a part of that. The Spurs are kind of unique and in, in how they do it under Pop because it's like incredible knowledge and goes all out in curating everything. You sit down and you get an amazing experience every time. Um, other teams have adopted that in part from uh, the Spurs' way. Uh, I know that Steve Kerr in Phoenix was wanting to do some of that and. David Griffin, who was the, um, worked with him there, and then became the uh, the GM in Cleveland, and was doing some of that. I've heard about other stories, you know, his disciples doing that elsewhere. But yeah, I think it. I think that there are certain things that matter to a lot of people, right? Like, okay, what what are you going to pay me? Uh, what's going to be my role in this team? Do I have a chance to win? Are my business opportunities here strong? Um, you know, there's a you know, there's a lot of factors to it, but somewhere along the way. The culture of the place matters, and um, I've especially become come to appreciate that in recent years because as the NBA has become this place where you don't need to be in a big market to have success. You can, you know, get all the advertising dollars you want in Oklahoma City or in Milwaukee or Memphis or wherever because it's such a digital world. And I can watch any game anywhere from my phone and follow. You know, anybody can have an enormous social media following anywhere from Antarctica or whatever. Um, it then amplifies other things. And it's like, okay, how strong is the leadership here? Um, how together, you know, the ownership, what does that look like? How would, you know, the, the practice facility, the, the investment you're making in sports science and analytics and uh, in nutrition, you know, and helping get the absolute best out of me. Like how great is everybody in all these categories? And the dinners, you know, are a key part of the culture. Look, the amount of people who were involved in the Spurs, still involved in the Spurs, former players, they describe these experiences as being like the backbone of the camaraderie that you would see on the court. When guys are on the road and even at home, they don't have to all hang out. They don't have to come together at any point. And especially on the road, they have a million things they could do. Guys go to New York, I'm going to, you know, I have all these people I want to see. But the fact that they can get together, and learn about each other, especially in an international locker room like that. Like, I'm going to learn about your culture and where you're from, tell me your story, all this other stuff. It it connects people in a way that's uh, that's different. And uh, so anyways, that's a very long, rambling answer to your question. I But I, I again, I think it speaks to culture. Culture matters. Well, I think the Spurs kind of,
0: it, from a glance, I don't report on the NBA, but I casually watch it and I find that the Spurs puts out these like metered players, like incredible talent, but like from Tim Duncan to Kawhi, who's came and now not on their team, and now in Toronto and and, uh, David Robinson, Tony Parker, Ginobili, like this humble aesthetic, if you will. And it's almost like, was that because of like a wine culture and a food culture there that maybe is different in Miami? That might be a little bit more, I don't know, cigars and fucking pop off. I don't know. Like what's Miami culture versus LA culture and San Antonio culture could be dictated by the different food and things that are available there. They're very much about
1: team. It is about the team. It is about, uh, you know, pop would Greg Popovich would, it was, it was always legendary. He would ride Tim Duncan, greatest power forward ever. One of the greatest players in NBA history. A, a, you can't say enough things about how amazing he was, but Pop would ride him incredibly hard all the time. And it was a message that everybody here is going to be held accountable. Everybody matters. Um, There's no one player that's bigger than the team. It's about the team first, last, and always. And there are different organizations that the stars have. And it's understandable in a way, right? Like people who are transcendent can have more leeway in various places. But there it is about the team. It is always about the team as long as the structure that's placed there is there. It's going to be about the team. So, and that's not true everywhere. Could you uh,
0: now that the uh, Warriors are officially in the 2019 NBA Finals uh, as of the recording of this podcast? Could you talk real quick about your your article that you wrote, where basically kind of stemmed from a charcuterie board that their coach Kerr at the time or currently. Did and then kind of explained the new offense that essentially kind of broke the NBA.
1: Yeah, oh, so that was such a fun such story. Such a good piece. Thank you, man. It was uh, it's an interesting journey as I look back on it. Um, so here's how that started. When I was covering the Lakers, Luke Walton, then the head coach said, I want to have us do 300 passes a game. And I remember asking him, like, that's kind of an arbitrary number. Like, where does it come from? And he said, oh, well, when, you know, Steve Kerr got higher up in Golden State, that's what he said. He wanted 300 passes a game. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So I kind of tucked that in my back pocket. And then during one of the NBA Finals uh, they were in, uh, I asked an assistant coach, like, hey, well, you know, walk me through the very beginning, the genesis of your guys's offense. There was some mention of like 300 passes a game, and he was like, oh yeah, you know, I remember it was a uh, Bruce Frazier, the assistant coach. And he said, oh yeah, I remember we were like, you know, we really want to move the ball, and uh, we were trying to figure out, you know, what the offense was going to look like, and me and Steve were like living in San Diego, but we were commuting up here a lot. And then one day we were at a wine bar at the airport and we were like moving peanuts and raisins around on a board and I was like, well, that's a, you know, that's interesting. Um, and I think I texted him later. I was like, what, um, you know, do you, it was the Oakland airport and do you remember the name of the wine bar or whatever? So on my, after that finals, I went to, as I was flying back to LA where I live, I stopped at that, I flew out of Oakland and I went to the wine bar and I just said to some employees, like, hey, look, this is going to sound a little crazy, but I'm I'm kind of curious if anyone here remembers this thing that happened, like, I don't know, three or four years ago. <laughs> um, it was, like, this afternoon, Steve Kerr was in, Bruce Frazier was in. Here's, you know, Bruce Frazier looks like this. You, pre- you guys probably know what Steve Kerr looks like. And somebody there was, like, yeah, actually, I do remember that. Like, he had the board on, and he was, like, moving stuff around, and somebody had asked him, you know, and I don't think the guy worked there anymore, but, like, you know, oh, we're really excited to have you. What's the new offense going to look like? Like, you know, under Mark Jackson, the previous coach, it was really ISO and the ball didn't move. And I think they were actually last in the NBA in passes. And so, um, they, they that person, I called them later. And I was like, hey, do you remember this thing from a few years ago? He's was like, absolutely. It was like super vivid memory. I talk about it to people. I think about it, you know, when I'm watching the team sometimes, like that very beginning. And then I, I walked it, I walked Steve through it, Steve later. What this kid remembered, and he was like, "Yeah, that's actually exactly how it happened." And uh, he said that was oddly enough the first time when I was diagramming plays, I kind of had a vision for what, how the team would play, for the way that they would, the way that we would function on the court, our offense. And it was, yeah, it was heavily predicated on ball movement. Again, the team was last in the NBA in passes. They wanted to dramatically increase that figure, and there were certain X's and O's and elements of throughout Steve's career. Uh, you know when certain elements of the triangle when he was in Chicago, certain elements of ball movement when he was in San Antonio, certain elements when he was in Phoenix. So those kind of marriage of things, this stew, if you will, of his offensive experiences and three like amazing places to to be. I Steve has like the places he's been, the people he's been under. It's kind of like Forrest Gump in a way, like all these amazing points in it in basketball history. Uh, so that's how that started, and it was just kind of this story about how the Warriors offense came to be and uh well, i love how he through your story i mean it's pretty vivid he
0: it's almost as if steve kerr got asked by a random waiter yeah at that wine bar hey man what are you going to do different and instead of just blowing him off or giving him like a quick quick yeah, he, he co- said i'll show you he and cleared he cleared
1: the charcuterie board right and-, and he was like moving stuff around and he was explaining like you know he was like i guess with what does it say like uh, uh cranberries and marcona almonds like here's how we want to Here's how we want to function, and the um, cranberries
0: was the defense. The almond
1: yeah. was the offense. You had Clay Thompson, almond,
0: yeah. or sorry, it was almond Steph Curry, almond Clay Thompson, almond Draymond. I laughed, cackled out loud, describing that, that was so funny. Yeah,
1: uh, it was, it was, it was a really fun one, and uh, I think Steve told me at some point after that came out that people would say to him from time to time, um, you know, instead of like going back to the draw we gotta dr- go back to the drawing board which the Warriors obviously haven't, have, haven't had to do a lot over the last several <laughs> years. They've been just fine. But they've, they've cracked to him, like, you need to go back to the charcuterie report. So that was a really fun story. Actually, uh, an interesting side note off of that, uh, the Purdue men's basketball team, I saw this in a story later, the, the, I think the head coach or one of their, their analytics person had assigned them that particular story on the Warriors. as like homework material. And they wanted to ratchet up their passes per game throughout uh the course of the season so like they were using they they read that everybody on the team had to read that story like and uh so i i texted steve about that and then you're like thank you for the 20 more
0: page views <laughs> well no but it was
1: what was cool was that uh i was like i kind of started following them i know steve did too and then seeing the success of that team over the last few, couple of years it's not because of my story they, just, they have really good players and they execute well and moving the ball is not necessarily like a uh a revolutionary thing but anyways it was that was kind of a fun thing to see after the fact
0: that's rad um talking about wine i think you mentioned a bit in your article that it took someone like lebron james kind of to kind of co-sign wine and kind of kind of usher it in do you how do you feel about weed in the nba
1: Well, that's that's interesting. Um, And I guess maybe even just in just professional sports. Yeah, uh, You know, I mean, we're in California where it's legal, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's legal. As a resident, I should know this. Yeah. Um, I think that the whole stigma about that, about marijuana, has changed in professional sports, excuse me, in that um, if there was kind of a negative perception of it, I think people have— and, and I think this also coincides with mental health being a something that was kind of a taboo subject, mm. having changed a lot in the NBA and professional sports in general. I think the way that people look at marijuana in professional sports, you know, incredibly high-stress situations. You think about the stakes for these guys, the way of the world on them, their livelihood, all the people that are relying on them, again, like individual corporations in a way. Uh, It's it's definitely changed. And if it was something that people wouldn't talk about before, trying to keep quiet, whatever, I don't think that's the case as much. And so uh, I know, and I know, I think my colleague at ESPN, Tom Juno, did a story about this one NFL player's campaign to try to make it more acceptable amongst other players, especially because they're in pain so much. And this was like a, you know, medication or whatever. And I think those those that term... Mm -hmm. Medication is something that people now more openly associate with uh, marijuana in professional sports in general, in a way that that you know takes it just takes kind of the taboo um, sheen off of it or whatever you want to call it. So when you when you
0: learn more about wine and why certain NBA players drink it, and let's think outside of pop in terms of a kind of social thing, but. And the the transition between being a beer and liquor league, which was definitely like I have a beer to like take the edge off, liquor yeah. we're partying, was wine kind of a wind down thing for players. Like, was it kind of a mellow me out after the game type thing?
1: It's it's interesting, um, and I, I've often tried to find in a lot of my stories. If you read through them carefully, you'll see certain themes, and one of the themes is like often trying to find how something began. And with that story, I was often like, okay, why you know why did this happen? And I remember some players were saying, I think it was Dwayne Wade, he was like, you know, maybe it was Carmelo, Anthony, like when you get into your 30s, you slow down a little bit. You know, you want to – and your guys are maybe taking a little bit better care of their bodies, and uh, wine was a part of that. It wasn't, you know, excuse me, it's a little bit um, maybe a little bit easier uh, for the next day than like having a bunch of like hardcore liquor the night before. So – as they're thinking about maintaining their body and maybe slowing down, just you know, maintenance, I think that plays into it. Mm-hmm. Um, the guys had mentioned kind of slowing down, and I think there's a better appreciation just in America in general of wine at the dinner table, whereas overseas in so many of these countries, especially in Europe, South America, like all over, basically it seems like everywhere but America, uh, wine was just considered to be part of the dinner table. So yeah. I think there's a culmination of things, just of wine being more acceptable amongst um, Americans and you know the 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 big names in the NBA who kind of co-signed on it, as you as you pointed out, the age at which they were at, mm. and slowing down, maybe taking wanting to take a little bit better care of their bodies. Um, there's a yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, pieces to the puzzle there as to why why it kind of took off in a way. Because
0: LeBron at 23 talking about drinking a bunch of wine makes him sound like a drunk. Kind of young kid, but LeBron at thirty three is like, oh, that dude's aged very well. Understands it classy, seems a little more refined
1: or cultured or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's not to say that people like in their early twenties who know a lot about wine are, you know, like it's a faux pas or anything. But yeah, I mean, look, a essential tenet of wine is it takes time. Mm. You from, know, it's that's a key part of it. So,
2: from the NBA's perspective, have you seen? I'm assuming that marijuana is still part of like a, a drug offense from the NBA standard. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm kind of assuming since it's not federally legal. But have you run into anything, Baxter, where you know you know players are taking cannabis or the NBA taking a lighter stance on cannabis, knowing that they can technically, if you're a team... If you're Golden State, if you're the Clippers, if you're the Lakers, like you live in a state where it's legal. Um, if you're in Denver, it's legal. Um, is there a relaxed attitude from the NBA side of things that that you've seen or heard of?
1: I'll be honest with you. It's I mean it's a very good question. I honestly don't know. Um, and it's it's an even more pertinent question given uh, you know as you mentioned the. Kind of legal things that have happened in in particular states with respect to that, but the, that's a great question. I wish I didn't answer for you there. I probably should, right? But well, I think uh, you bring up great points with
0: the wine of of kind of the the rebound, the hangover of wine is a little bit better than pounding a bunch of whiskey the night before and and i think about that too when i'm out drinking like all right wine hangover is bad but i can kind of measure myself and then weed hangover is kind of the best in terms of like it's not a raging headache the next morning it's a little bit less taxing on the body does mellow you out after you play um so i'm curious how it does come into fruition within the nba in the coming years as medicinal even as recreational as just like not even treating it as a
1: Medicine, just as a chill-out drug. Yeah. Like. No, you, I, you, it's, as you just said, in the coming years, I think that'll be really interesting. And I think probably just for, like, you know, the country in general. Um, but, yeah, it's especially in the NBA, in professional sports, given how long that kind of stuff was looked at in a certain light. And how things have have have, and are, have been changing. I, guess. I
0: feel like NBA is the sport to make that happen too, though. At least a little bit more forward-thinking than some of their uh, competing sports you counterparts. Know, yeah. Counterparts, like I think, I think it's the way to do it. And I think it's. I'm curious to see who pops out and kind of gets
2: ahead of it. Well, with the way marijuana marketing and CBD marketing is happening. Mm. I would not be surprised in the next six months if you're looking at retired players who like no longer is the official kind of part of the league but still represents the league. Like, yeah. there, there have to be offers on management table for retired players right now to say, hey, make your own line of CBD. Like that, ha- that literally has, it's happening when when instagram influencers are getting their own cbd lines for like 200,000 followers on instagram you know that same you know select cbd like the biggest cbd company in california and beyond yeah. if they got the introduction to a former nba player they'd be they'd be all over it but i wanted to i wanted to talk about another subject that's still kind of related to s- stimulating your mind or mm. changing your body's behavior because Baxter, you've written a lot about caffeine mm-hmm. um, and specifically the, the pre-game coffee rituals, especially on on players uh, of the Portland Trailblazers, um, because I thought it was so interesting in your article, I never thought about the travel time of basketball yeah. players in oh, comparison to other sports. And noting that they're the only pacific northwest team in the nba makes them travel that much more and and what does travel time look like for nba oh man well compared to other sports too okay so uh
1: uh the nba let's see 82 games 176 days that's like a game every other day but in that time span they're traveling i think the trailblazers they often lead the league it's like fifty thousand miles during that span so that can be upwards of I think it breaks down to like 250 miles a day, which I think is like, imagine if every single day you flew from, I think New York to Pittsburgh um, and for eight months. And then had to do something. (laughs) Right, you have to perform. (laughs) So here's the thing, like, I I mean, look, and I I write a lot about travel and fatigue um, uh, in sports science for ESPN. It's a a very passionate uh, thing I do, or or a subject I'm very passionate about, but it is brutal what these guys have to go through. So imagine, you know, one of the, the most feared scenarios in the NBA is the back-to-back where you play a game on the West Coast and then have to fly into Denver. And so, you know, there, and there's a lot of factors, like, but let's say it's a 7.30 start time, and uh, let's say it's a national TV game. Those always run a little bit longer, the halftime, the commercials, uh, things of that nature. You might the game might end let's say 9 10 that's if there's no overtime you know guys gotta get showered get dressed talk to the media they'll probably eat they gotta get to the plane nba rules stipulate that you have to fly out kind of the night uh the night of so they might get in they're losing an hour on the time zone change uh you know the distance from the airport in denver i think did one of you guys say you just came back from denver yeah did. yeah so you know uh but the distance between that and downtown that's a hall yeah um you know there can be inclement weather there there's the elevation change it's typically very dry uh guys might not get to the, you know i had people tell me they like sometimes they would get to their door at the hotel um at the same time that like the next day's newspaper would be there so or or they get there before so just be waiting for or uh, after so be waiting for them. And then you got to play a game less than 24 hours later against a team that might be rested. So fatigue is a huge, huge part of the NBA. And that, so that story you mentioned about the Trailblazers, you know, you go to any NBA locker room, there's going to be caffeine supplements. Might be the energy shots, the little drinks. You'll see coffee, you'll see tea, you'll see uh, things like Red Bull, whatnot. And because of this schedule they're on, guys are constantly tired throughout the year. I've had so many athletic trainers and players and coaches and nutritionists and sports scientists talk about this. Guys are really tired throughout the year. You know, a game might end, then you get home. Like, I think it was a – maybe it was a sleep scientist who told me this once. He said, you know, we, we all are, we're we always talking about, okay, they stay in nice hotels, they fly on charter flights, they get paid well, like, you know, don't complain. I worked hard too. My job's tough. He's like, okay, but let's, let's say that you – Had to perform a really high stress activity at night for several hours. Your adrenaline's pumping. You might not get to bed till 2 or 3 a.m., maybe. And you got to do that, let's say, a couple times a week. Um, Imagine how you'd feel after eight months. And that's not even counting the travel. So it's really tough. So, like the trail, but you know, so as this kind of segues into, into what we were talking about earlier, as the investments have been made and fine tuning diets, nutrition, all this stuff. Uh, they're looking at, okay, what are you put? you know, we want to give you a lift. Like, you need a jolt. You know, you're tired before work, just like a lot of America or a lot of the world. What can we give you that will be, that you'll like, that we know will work, that you'll trust, uh, that won't be so potent that you won't be able to get any sleep that night? It's tough to check, check all those boxes. And guys were like, you know, I had some special say, look, it seems like antiquated or really simple, but... A cup of coffee is a pretty safe route for that. Like, you know what's in it? It's coffee and water. And uh, it tends to do the trick. So, yeah, they were, you know, and of course, because NBA players are particular, the way that they have it made there is like quite a process and whatnot. But, uh, the, the the you know, I think the headline of the story is they're like the NBA's frequent flyers. The, the Trailblazers actually, I believe, um, again, i have to pull it up and look at the stats, but I think they fly more than any team in professional sports. So you can make the case that they're the most sleep-deprived team in professional sports. So that what caffeine is for them is different than anybody else. Um, it's like working the graveyard shift in some ways. Dude, uh, I, so yeah, I, we were
0: talking about this earlier. The caffeine article is 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 incredible and and kind of when we play basketball, Jeff and I, it's definitely not at that level. But even at like high school ball, like you get the jitters. You know, your anxiety's through the roof. Your yeah. heart's pumping. I almost I don't want that anxiety. Like I don't need that kind of energy and i can only
1: imagine walking out onto an nba court with the right. lights
0: tens of thousands of people
1: looking at you and then the national television and yeah. It, yeah just imagine for the playoffs and like if you don't play you know guys have incentives in their contracts like if you don't do this well you're missing out on x millions of dollars you got all this other stuff so yeah it's a um it's a i mean the stress on these guys is like is tremendous and so you know and then just imagine trying to come down from that. It's was like, okay, yeah, all right, good game. Uh, now just have a nice night's nice sleep. It's like, you know, I'll have, have uh, when I was a, a beat writer covering the, the Celtics uh, for the Globe and then covering uh, the Lakers for ESPN, you know, like after a game, the rush of deadline of getting all my work done and everything like that, it's tough to even come down from that. And not even play in the game. Yeah. And it's, it's true for anybody who's even working at the game. You talk to people who just work game nights for teams, like it's it's not easy. So, um, and they didn't even play. So it's sleep in the NBA, a subject I've written about a lot, is a huge, huge deal. Um, and I think that as a culture, we're starting to learn about the effects of sleep loss and sleep deprivation more than we ever have. Part because of these, I'm holding up my telephone and what they do to that. So. Uh, but yeah it's you know caffeine is a is it's an important and heavily scrutinized thing in the league and the the trailblazers are were for me a key area to look at in that regard
2: in that article uh, you talked about how certain players asked for a specific coconut based superfood creamer <laughs> yeah. and you know their their beans are from a local roaster Uh, But the reason I'm kind of bringing that up is for a long time, the league has kind of been associated with the Gatorades of the world. Um, You mentioned earlier that there's still like kind of Red Bulls in locker rooms for energy stimulants. But I'm assuming a lot of players are looking at the ingredient decks of the aforementioned Gatorades, Powerades, Red Bulls, even the coffee that they're drinking, which is why they want the coconut-based superfood creamer versus milk or anything else like that. Are they still drinking Gatorade in the NBA?
1: Gatorade is still an enormous sponsor, and you'll see the the orange tubs behind benches. You'll see it in team fridges, in locker rooms. But I think this kind of coincides with what we were talking about earlier. As players have made more of an investment in their bodies and in trying to be as precise as they can about what goes in and how that impacts them, taking a look at the ingredients and maybe relying on the advice of a personal nutritionist, a personal dietitian, somebody who works with the team who maybe 20 years ago, the team didn't have somebody in that role, but now they do. Uh, those are absolutely discussions that are are frequent. You'll see, you know. So, and 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 what guys' preferences are, like you know, you mentioned Portland. That's that's based, in fact, on that. Like, it, you know, they could easily say, "I'm tired. Um, I'll take anything," but it's it's not about that. They're wanting to be precise about what goes into their body. And I also think that that sugar in general is a is a more scrutinized topic in the league. I know we talked about Dwight Howard earlier, but I think that trying to limit sugar intake in a way um, is something I've heard about and come across maybe more and more. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe sugar... I mean, I I mentioned some of those sugar documentaries earlier that kind of like, oh, sugar is like, all right, here's what it can do to you. Um, I think that that's maybe been a a cultural thing as well.
0: Are there any other shifts... um you're seeing in the nba i mean i i i see like plant-based stuff being being a big shift like with kyrie saying he's going vegan um beyond meat alone has like deandre jordan kyrie chris paul as investors jj reddick's like on their roster Mm -hmm. are you seeing that as a thing with more nba players yeah
1: um so the plant-based vegan movement again this just goes into like well how can i eat better how can i uh, be more um and and i think when you have certain really important athletes uh, in sports in general. I think Tom Brady's been, his diet, I think I've heard some stories about it. Uh, he is, that man is incredibly precise. And, uh, you know, get people will look at the success he's had and say, okay, well, he's doing something right. So uh, there's it, there's movements like that. So when, when younger players, and, I, and here's something else I want to distinguish too. I think there's a time when players are younger And they'll, like people who are younger, think that, you know, they're kind of invincible in a way. And these guys are unbelievable athletes. They can do anything. They're Greek gods. They can jump to the moon. Like, it's incredible. And maybe they didn't really care about their diet until later in their career when it's like they start slowing down. Father Time starts to intervene. And they're trying to ink out like one or two more contracts in their careers so they really need to all right i gotta start icing i gotta start eating better i can't stay out as late i gotta do this to go to that manage my money better um i think a general movement that i've seen is those things are happening earlier mm. and if guys are you know they're, they're trying to be more diligent about their diets early on they're trying to be more diligent even about like post-career investments early on they're not waiting until the end mm. Um, and, and they're doing other things, to take care of their body, like, okay, I'm going to really invest in physical therapy and recovery is a huge, huge word around the NBA. You go in the locker rooms, you'll see the Norma Tech sleeves on a lot of guys' feet uh, or legs, sorry. So these are big, big movements. So I would say just in general, taking care of your body. And then there's a lot of offshoots from that. And and you know what they're eating uh, plays a huge, huge part into that. And there's more info, I feel, that we
0: didn't have during high school too, like yeah. as just as athletes, like Jeff and I were talking about like team dinners in high school where like awesome mothers of the team would like ziti and pasta yeah. and enchiladas, everything. And like the boys need carbs before the game. And yeah, like carb that, loading. F- that fucked us up <laughs> growing up. Like I got benched because I ate KFC before a game, but I didn't know any better. Cause I mm-hmm. thought you're supposed to eat chicken before you play basketball. And I was, like, throwing up in the layup line. So, and uh, you see that in, like, you know, the only introspection I get into young athletes' lives like that is, like, the Ball Brothers and their show on Facebook. And you kind of see, like, they're all, like, these for better words like basic eaters like they're in latvia eating mcdonald's like that's all they want but it's almost like they still have that mentality that hasn't transitioned of yo i'm I'm working out eight hours a day i'm gonna have mcdonald's like i'm good or i, I want french fries and ketchup like that's just what i want yeah uh, but but there's other athletes i know and, and younger folks that are just really they're just aware they're just there's more knowledge out there and they're soaking
1: it in Absolutely. Um, you know, this has been one of, the, one of the, you know, the the big things that have changed with technology. Like you have, like, you have the world at your fingertips. There's nothing you can't learn about. And you, you know, it wasn't always true. Guys could get away with things because it's like, well, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But now there's no excuse for not knowing. And um, it's so competitive to be at this level. It's so competitive. It is so hard to get there. It is so hard to stay. There's a million things outside your control that will impact your ability to be a uh, like, you know, a, a high quality earner of dollars. So and to make an impact, you have to take advantage of everything. Mm. Um, and if you don't, you know, look. This isn't to say that you need to be super militant and you can't like have a burger every now and again. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that that you know being Focused on this as an element of your improvement as a player is something that you you have to do because if, if nothing else, because everybody else is doing it. It's not like back in the old days when like everybody's diet was like meh. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of this is in some ways. If guys are in the gym working on their game, they're going home and they're recovering. You know, they're doing like hot and cold baths and and various recovery techniques. You got to do that. You got to have you know these are investments you got to make if you want to. If you want to make your mark.
2: In in the article about wine, uh, you talked about Dwayne Wade and well and Gabriel Union, but how they they spoke how younger players in the league, maybe when Dwayne was a younger player, it was kinda all about chains and then this new set of uh new set of younger players or are thinking about their body and financial security in ways that the generations before them haven't really thought about it. And that made me think about the everyday kind of tr- financial transactions that normal people like Eli and I have when you, you know we're brainstorming a project and uh, I'm buying him coffee, or we're going out to a group dinner and we're kind of splitting the tab because it's eight people and it's a large format dinner. And the pop culture reference we have of this is LeBron James playing LeBron James in Cheap Ass in, in, train uh, wreck. in Trainwreck, yeah. and he plays this character that's really cheap, right? Where he will split coffee with his friend because and Bill Hader, right? Yeah, yeah. and you know <laughs> that's a really funny movie. And <laughs> I know I'm going into a diatribe, but it's players have all this information related to how many. Professional players have gone broke after earning millions in the league. And, you know, that information's right in front of them. So are they being cheaper because they know that the lifespan of their NBA career might be five to eight years if they're lucky? And that's going to be their entire earnout period for the rest of their life? Yeah.
1: That's, a, that's a, a great question. I don't know if I would say they're, quote, unquote, being cheaper. I think what I'd say is they are being more – they're more aware of what you just said, that their lifespan – not lifespan, but, like, their – the period of time in which they can be an, an earner of NBA dollars is finite, and that they have to capitalize on that while they can, take care of their bodies so they can get, you know, maybe more years out of it than they, they otherwise would if they didn't, and also – if there was a point in time when athletes, uh, I think this is another trend you would asked me about earlier, uh, like trends I see. I think if there was a point in time when athletes would say like, okay, my life is my NBA, NFL, whatever career, and I don't have to think about anything else beyond that. I don't think that's true anymore. I think players are aware that they need to invest in post-career things during their career, which is when they're, they're like, you know, status as an earner is probably at their highest. They're the most celebrity, their most ability to make connections, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's a, been a huge movement. You talk about Dwayne and Wine, You know, he told me he didn't think initially that he would even do something like this. No, well, after his career. And the guy was like, well, why not now? He's like, okay, you know. So here he is. And he's, you know, I mean, up until he retired, he was still doing it while he was a player. So, you know, that adds cachet to it. Uh but, yeah, I remember, you know, to what you referenced earlier, we did that documentary, ESPN did, uh, 30 for 30, about broke. And these guys, because they are so incredibly competitive, would almost spend each other into poverty. Um, like, you get really nice car, I got to get an even better car, you get really nice threads, I got to get even better threads, like da-da-da-da. And they are unbelievably competitive people. That's partly why they are where they are, but it can, you can almost, you know, they can, can go too far. So, but I think there's been a huge movement towards post-career investments during their careers. You know, we've seen it in, particularly in Silicon Valley, with hedge funds, venture capitalists, tech, things of that nature. Several of the guys in the Warriors, incredibly conveniently located for that type of thing, but they've done that. Um, and you've seen it, you know, LeBron invested in a ton of stuff. Uh, you're seeing, yeah, so that that's a movement in and of itself, but... I think players are just being smarter with their money, and they're realizing the much bigger picture. Like, I'm going to be a player for a short period, and then there's the rest of my life. How can I use this to set that up financially, professionally, et cetera, et cetera? And it's cool to see. I mean, like, I don't think anybody wants to see some star uh, be in such a position where after their career, it's it's sad, and they're having to. I don't know, try to leverage some of their celebrity from way back when to just make ends meet and, you know, the situation becomes really dire. So it's it's cool to see and I think it helps it helps a lot of other people think about things too. Like when these guys do things, the impact goes far beyond sports. It teaches us I mean because that's how big their platform is and their voice is. So if they're if they're you know talking about post-career investments and thinking about the bigger picture beyond just the career you have, I'm sure that resonates with people in uh, who don't even play basketball to think about, you know, hey, should I invest? Uh, boy, a 401k sounds nice and, you know, whatever. That, those kinds of things. So,
2: Part of the way players earn, especially top-tier players, are, are through their endorsement deals. Uh, we've already kind of talked about the negative effects of sugar which seems to me like we're kind of becoming at a cross-section where players may or may not start to take endorsements that they can't actually use or back up. And I think, again, I don't know Russell Westbrook's. Yeah, is he really drinking Mountain Dew? Is he really drinking Mountain Dew? I don't know. But has anything you've seen where, obviously those checks are big, so I don't think people are going to just say no to that. But, you know, have you seen any player think about their soda deal or you know certain elements that aren't good for the brand and or aren't good for them specifically and they might actually like say no to something five to ten years ago they might say yes to
1: that's a great that's a great question um because it, it 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 there's this point when it's like how much money am i getting but then is it something that i believe in that i actually use that I want people associating me or that I want kids looking up to me to use as well. You know, especially if I don't use this product at all. In fact, if I try to stay away from it as, as much as possible, I don't know. I can't speak to particular situations. I have, I've had some private conversations with people in the league on the sports science, athletic training side where, you know, they've mentioned, I won't, I won't go into specifics here. Excuse me. Where they've mentioned, uh, Their organization has a deal with, you know, a a soft drink company, an energy drink company, a sports drink company, and they want their players to not consume those things uh, because they don't think they're the healthiest thing for them. And that's where the business and the basketball sides kind of collide in a way. And I think it's an interesting kind of dance that some of these people have to do who are in a position like, all right, you're the sports nutritionist, right? On this side, we have an X you know, dollar amount of deal with this company. So the product is going to be around a lot, always. But you know, through your training and knowing what's best for these guys, that you actually don't want them to have that. And maybe you want to limit their exposure. I think that's a really interesting crossroads that you have to make. Um, and I do think that even some of the conversations I've had, I'm sure that those... That, that's, that goes probably throughout professional sports. Um, and I'm sure there's probably individual athletes who will think about that stuff uh, 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 more carefully now than maybe before, whereas, like, you know, I mean, it's again, it speaks to what we're talking about. Like, players are more aware. They're more diligent about that stuff, what's going in. And as they think about their brand in that way, too, I think that absolutely factors in. I wonder if
0: two things are going on. I wonder if this friction, if you will, behind the scenes of kind of big conglomerate sports drink companies or whatever it may be that is counterintuitive to the nutrition of the teams i wonder if that informs companies let's say gatorade long-term to make healthier gatorade you're already seeing it right there's like gatorade less sugar gatorade more electrolytes whatever it may be like hey we're gonna make the nutrition aspect of this better and better we're already in the nba And if it gets if it gets better, I wonder if that's a thing, or I wonder if you start seeing more owner investors of stuff, and you're seeing that already, right? Like people like does Lonzo Ball uh, sign with Nike or does he start his own company? He starts his own company, and you see like Kobe Bryant towards the end, like I'm just gonna invest in body armor. The drink Uh, is the next play. Like someone just investing or creating their own the way some players. Invest in plant based meat companies, yeah. you know? Make your own endorsement, if you will. It's a, it's a,
1: again, yeah, another good question. You guys are bringing the heat today. Um, I think that one of the things that probably informs some of these companies, whether it's soft drinks or sports drinks, soft drinks, um, energy drinks, is that the general conversation at large is people are probably more looking at the ingredient list than probably ever before. And they're maybe thinking harder about, Sugar or chemicals, or I don't, I can't pronounce this. I mean, we live in Southern California. I mean, that's a huge part big of the part conversa- of our culture. Yeah, it's a big part of our culture. What are, you, what are you putting into your body? And you see a lot of restaurants where, you know, we want a vegan menu, we want to gluten free this, so that, you know, people are being really. So I think that, I think the general conversation at large that's just happening uh, is, is informing some of those conversations that you, and the thought process you're probably talking about. And then, probably at a more finite level, I think sports too, because if there's anybody who has to be really dialed in on what's going into their system, it's these players. And it's the team's job on the performance side, uh, like athletic trainers and nutritionists, whatnot, to help them be at their best. And if I'm going to provide options, I mean, those options have to get them there. So, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny. Uh, more than ever before for sure
2: i'm going to be excited to read the future baxter article that talks about the nba player that turned down a million dollars because it wasn't something that he agreed like I think that's happening within the next 12 months
0: because we're only talking about the shoe deals that are getting turned down right like oh like uh, notoriously someone will turn down this shoe deal to start their own company or turn down this deal because the deck didn't look as good they didn't care about me as a person the way Adidas did so I'm a sign with Nike or vice versa it's got to be happening with food and it's got to have bigger reverberations than we're thinking about
2: when Beyonce walks out of a Reebok room because she doesn't feel like it's represented I'm telling you that there's things that have already happened that the three of us may not be privy to but it's for sure happened from some sugary sports beverage company approaching some player and it just doesn't work out the specifics we don't know but i know in my gut that that's already happening and so i think it's only a matter of time before something like that gets leaked or you know or someone comes out about it because the these athletes as you've mentioned back not only they corporate like individual corporations they're also their own megaphones of pop culture and mm. when they want to take a stance on certain issues they have millions of followers to do it and so if they turn down a million dollar deal but also get to elevate themselves to a point of pop culture because they were on the right side of nutritional history or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I see that happening in the very near future.
1: Uh, well, I'll say this. Like, it, it's a very good story that I would hopefully uh, love to write at some point. If, it, if I'm able to find, and if anybody's listening who can help, I'm you know, it's <laughs> Uh But, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great story. To be told, and I'm—I wouldn't be surprised. I'll put it that way. I wouldn't be surprised if there's instances like that that have 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 happened, or will happen. And uh, yeah, I very much like to be the, the person to write it.
0: Are there, are there any parts of your stories b-sides that didn't make the cut for whatever reason? If some of your blockbuster stories that we're talking about, the PB&J, the wine perhaps, the charcuterie, I'm curious. As yeah,
1: a- um, that's a good good question. I mean, and this is maybe recency bias, but like the the Popovich one, there were like 200 pages of interviews for that. And wow. <laughs> um, I mean, I just like, I take a long time with a lot of the things that I work on. Um, that, I mean, not everything, but a lot of the big stuff, like there's, you know, people see the finished product, but there's, like, a lot of travel, and lots, lots of reporting, tons of interviews, notes, and so much other stuff. Uh, but there was a lot there uh, for him. And I think I posted most of the, like, tidbits or kind of leftovers uh, on one of my pages. Uh, or I, maybe it was on Twitter, I think, uh, that listed a lot of the leftovers there. But there was, like, there was so, so much. And... I'm trying to think of, like, one of my specific favorite. Oh, here's what it was. And actually, this kind of was published in the story, but it was published in an inline sidebar. But it was something I was really passionate about. And it's that there's another Greg Popovich. There's a guy in California who's a winemaker uh, who's in, he goes by Gregory Popovich. And for, like, the past 20 years... <laughs> You guys are like this. Actually, when I would talk to people about this story that I was working on, this is the first thing I would say. I'd say, like, I've been working on this story about Pop and his food and wine legend. However, there's another Greg Popovich, and then I'd tell the story I'm about to tell you guys. So in the mid-'90s, this guy gets a call uh, from a restaurant in San Francisco, and they're like, you know, we're just confirming your reservation for tomorrow night. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I'm down here. I made no reservation. He's like, hmm, that's weird. And then little things like that would happen to him over the period of the next few years. He would get... He would like go to a hotel and he'd say you check in and like oh you know well of course we have your usual room ready he'd be like i haven't stayed here before oh, this is weird um and then one day i think it was when dennis <laughs> robin was with the spurs he saw some story in the paper he was like oh wait the, their head coach oh wait a minute that may be why like there's another people are kind of mistaking me for him i mean it's not a super common name but what he started to learn over the years was that this guy was really into food and wine uh, because, and I remember there was, I'll just share a couple instances, but one, he called a restaurant in, I think it was like Despago in Maui, and was like, okay, um, you know, can I get a reservation? And they're like, no, we're all full. He's like, okay, well, here's my name. You know, if there's anything available, give me a call back. And he gets a call like seconds later from like the manager or the owner, and they're like, oh, Mr. Popovich, of course, we have your usual <laughs> table ready. You come in whenever you want. We're honored to have you. And he's like, okay, well, just so you know, like, I'm not the coach. And they're like sure, sure, sure. So he goes in, and, <laughs> uh, you know. So then, but this would continue to happen. It's happened for like again over a period of almost two decades. Where this guy, he tells me he's like, he's like, it's crazy. I'll get like the best reservation, or like I'm able to move a reservation around. It happened at Spago in Beverly Hills, uh, I think, this past summer, where he called the night before and was like, I need to move my reservation a little bit. They're like, absolutely not, it can't happen. Uh, what's the name? He's like, Popovich. You're like, absolutely. Sure. Whatever you need. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is, is he'll show up. He showed up to this restaurant. Popovich, party of six. Pop always goes in a party of six. That's his like ideal number. And he checks in and they're like, a bunch of people are at the front, super excited. They look past him because they think that the coach <laughs> is walking in. He's like coming in from valet. He's like, no no, no, it's me. And he'll, he'll like, present his card, and he's, like, and everybody's kind of disappointed initially. (laughs) You'll see, like, their kind of shoulders drop, and that happens. Uh, So, but then he's led to a table, best table in the house, right? Center room, kind of away from everybody. There's people there waiting to greet him. And he's, like, just so you know, like, you know, I'm not the coach. And he's had this for – he told me something like, you know, I've lived in this guy's shadow for, like, 20 years. But he said it's, like, he doesn't mind it because – He said, Look, he's an incredibly smart guy. Um, He really likes the way he talks about politics and civil issues uh, or civil rights issues. He's obviously a legendary coach. And he says, And I hear more about him and like what he's like in restaurants and people than probably anybody. And I'm telling you, like, nobody has ever said anything but the greatest things about him. He's like, And I always get the best table. I'm always able to get a reservation, (laughs) even though I tell them I'm not the guy. And the service is always above board or like, you know, even above and beyond. And all it is, all it cost me is like a little bit of uh, you know disappointment at the beginning. So he said, <laughs> if I ever get a chance to meet him, I would just like to say thank you because he's had a lot of really memorable meals uh, on behalf of this guy. But it was interesting when I first called him, uh, which was I don't know a year ago maybe. I was like, hey, look, you know, Baxter here, ESPN. Um, this is gonna sound crazy because somebody else had told me they're like, Yeah, hey, there's this other Greg Popovich. You should just call this guy. Um, so I called him. He's, I said, you know, Baxter ESPN, it doesn't sound crazy, but I'm working on story about the Spurs coach and how he's like super into food and wine. And I was just wondering if you've ever been mistaken for him. And he said, he's like, he sighed for a minute and then he thought about it and he said, you know, now that you think about it, now that I think about it, this has happened to me constantly for like 20 years, but he hadn't really like. <laughs>
2: He, he hadn't really, put it together in his head. Yeah, like he was that. just
1: so used to it because this has been his life that he hadn't really taken a step back. And then we talked a lot, and he would like recall instances of it happened at this restaurant or the security guards here at the place where he lives in, like a gated community. He's like, they always call me coach. Uh, people would joke with him about that, and he's like, yeah, this has just happened a lot. So he was. It was really funny. That was a really delightful part uh, for me for that story. So. I'll say this. I hope that they are able to have, I hope the Popoviches are able to have a glass of wine and meet up someday. I think that'd be awesome. That's a cute bow on the whole
0: thing. All right. So I want to read more into, into the other Pop. That's good. Yeah. that's good. Are
2: there any stories you're, they're working on now that you're excited to debut in the coming weeks or months?
1: Yes. And I can't talk about any of them.
2: Gotcha. Follow
0: Baxter on Twitter. How did You got at Baxter. That's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a. I have at Baxter on Twitter and at Baxter on Instagram, and it's. Uh, I think it's because there's not a lot of competition. <laughs> That's basically it. Um, I've actually never met another uh, anybody else who has the first name of Baxter. So one day I'll I'll run into that and uh, we'll do our secret Baxter handshake and it'll be it'll be fun.
0: Well, Baxter, you, you truly are a legend, my friend. Thank you for uh, <laughs> thank you for being on and bringing these stories to light. I hope everyone at home enjoyed this very special podcast episode. Um Baxter thanks again man.
1: Thanks for having me man. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah, thanks Baxter.
0: All right guys. Bye.